it's good to see you this morning. Um, I pray continually that God bless this small congregation. I think he does just by giving us his word. Uh, We rest content in him. Uh, I want to welcome those who are viewing online as we continue to walk through Genesis chapter 2 here. Uh, If you have missed previously, uh, Genesis starting in chapter 1 verse 1, encourage you to go back and view those messages because they set up the context here for chapter 2. That's no secret, right? That chapter 1 sets the context for chapter 2. Today we are in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4, and we will read through verse 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. And no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold, the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, I'll continue reading through the end of the chapter. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now here we see something very interesting in the Genesis account. Moses has already provided an account of creation. Days 1 through 6 that we read in chapter 1, and then on day 7, God rested. And then Moses begins here in chapter 2, verse 4, saying, This is the account of the heavens and the earth. 
And in this chapter of Scripture, we see a different order of things taking place, at least on the surface level. So in chapter 1, we saw the plants being created before animals and animals being created before the man and his wife, Adam and Eve. In this chapter, in chapter 2, the account of creation, a second account of creation, seemingly we see the man being created, uh, and then somehow plants being created, and then animals being created after that. So there's a completely different order of things presented here on the surface level if we are to just uh, look at it and assume an order of things. So as we read through this, as we work through this text, I want us to be aware that there are those outside of the church who choose not to believe the Bible. I was almost one of these, if not for the grace of God and the movement of the Holy Spirit in my life, to read these two accounts of creation and assume that the Bible contradicts itself and to believe that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is a, a disjointed compilation of stories that people put together over time. And there are quite a few people today who consider themselves to be scholars, who consider themselves to be intellectuals and who are recognized as such by society who would say this is proof that, first of all, you can't believe Genesis 1 through 11 as literal history, that the Bible is contradictory, and that Moses probably didn't write the first 11 chapters of Genesis. He took these stories and compiled them together, or they were compiled together over time, and they are disjointed, not the same story. I'm going to argue the converse this morning, uh, that this is a joined story, all written by Moses, uh, working toward one single purpose. You remember from Genesis 1, as we walked through, we talked about the genre of Genesis, that Moses is writing in the myth style of the day. He's doing so as satire of myths in his society. Uh, He is not writing mythology here, but he's writing in that style of his time. He's not writing a legendary account. Uh, He means to write literal history here, but he's doing it in a popular style of his day in order to combat stories about many gods and about chaos. Um, And as we read through this, we're going to see that chapter 2 has the same purpose of chapter 1. Moses employs many symbols, beginning in chapter 2, many symbols from the myths being written in his time, from the legends of his time, in order to account for literal history. And he employs those symbols very purposefully to share a message with the people of his day. And, and the Israelites, the Hebrews, who grew up hearing these myths in Egypt, remember the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years, they heard the legends, the mythologies too, of Egypt and of Mesopotamia. And Moses is speaking into that. What you heard was not the correct story. There are not many gods. There's no such thing as chaos from the beginning God is sovereign, God is providential, God provides laws in nature, things do not happen mystically like you have been told, and so I want to tell you the way things really are. You remember from chapter 1, Moses was not as exact with his language as we would have liked him to be. One day, God created the heavens and the earth. On a second day, God did this. On a third day, God did this, so on until we get to the sixth day. And the reason Moses was so particular, so exact about the sixth day is because that's 
the day on which God created humanity. And so six becomes the number of a man. And when you get to Revelation, this is going to surprise some people listening, right, or watching. The number 666 is not the number of Satan. Revelation calls it the number of a man. And that number comes from chapter 1 in Genesis. Man was created on the 6th day. And on the 7th day, God rested. And that's why 7 becomes the number of perfection, the number of completeness. And why Jesus becoming our, our Sabbath, Jesus, the, 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 the 7, right? Jesus. And John talks about in Revelation the 7 spirits of God. The number 7 becomes a symbol for perfection and completeness. And when the seven spirits of God show up, that's the complete spirit of God. When a week is completed, you have the seventh day, the day of rest, the day on which we are to have completed all of our work for the week. And when Jesus becomes the Sabbath, rest. The one the one completing that, that seven, right? The seventh apocalyptic number. He, he becomes our rest and the one in whom all creation is completed and fulfilled and delivered and established as we read through the Bible. So what we read here in Genesis 1 and 2, it's important as we read the rest of the Bible. In chapter 2, Moses gets a lot more specific and direct with his language. So we didn't like the fact that he was inexact with his language in the first chapter. Welcome to chapter 2. He's going to be very exact with his language here even even providing like physical locations and and histories of of nations here that's why in verse four he clarifies like i was i was painting with broad strokes in chapter one yes as much as i was describing history and order i wanted that to be accurate but that wasn't my goal i organized that the way i did for a purpose we know that moses believes in a literal six-day creation in six days we read this in exodus chapter 20 in six days god created the heavens and the earth within those confines when he describes the seventh day he says by the seventh day things were finished so moses believes that but he wasn't being exact with chapter one and here in chapter two verse four now he wants to clarify this is the account this is the account i really want you to pay attention to that was important I wanted you to know who God was in comparison to all of these figures that people have invented and called deities, right? I wanted you to know that God was not a God of chaos, that God is sovereign and providential. But now, now this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Pay attention here. In the day that the Lord made the earth and heaven, and here day is being used in a different way than it was being used in chapter 1. In chapter 1, it was being used to refer to a, a, a day, one day God did this, like a, like a 24-hour day God did this one day. Here, this is in the day that God created the heavens and the earth, like we would say, in the day of Moses, or in the day of Noah, or in the day of Constantine, or in the day of the Roman Empire. Moses here is referring to an, an age like when God did this, I want to provide an account of this age, this time frame, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven. And here, Moses changes the way he's referring to God. So in chapter 1, you got, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and you, have the, you have God, and you have the Spirit of God, and you have the Word of God there in chapter 1. Here, Moses assigns God a proper name. And in English, we read, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven but in the hebrew it reads something like this in the day that 
Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh God. And, and Moses uses a, a proper name, Yahweh, to refer to God. And Elohim there is still plural. So anytime Moses says God, he's still using the plural. But then you look at Yahweh, the proper name of God, and it's singular. Okay? Now this is cool. We, we are still getting this in the first two chapters of Genesis. God is one essence. Yahweh. In his proper, in his essential, in his transcendent nature, Yahweh is one essence. But that's not all God is. He is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh God. And God is plural, referring to the plurality of God's persons. So God is singular in his essence. You can't say he's both singular and plural. That's a contradiction, okay? Don't word it that way. That is wrong, okay? You can't say that God is both one person and three persons. That is a contradiction. That is wrong, right? You can't say that God is both one and three without clarifying because then people have no idea what you're talking about. We need to clarify this. God is one essence, Yahweh, existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's Elohim. That's God. Singular essence, plurality of persons. is what we refer to as the Trinity. So from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 onward, we continue to see the way God wants to be known is in his Trinitarian self. One essence, one transcendent nature, Yahweh, three persons, Elohim. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Moses being very careful about the way he uses language here. In the day that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field. I'm about to geek out on you guys again. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. And no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Do you see what assumptions Moses is making here? Like, he assumes that in order to have plant life, you have to have rain. That makes sense to us. It made sense to him too, right? He assumes in order for plant life to to grow like it should there have to be people to cultivate the ground. He's making that assumption. It's really difficult to grow crops if you don't plant them exactly right and raise them exactly right and pay attention to their nutrients, right? Moses is making an assumption here that ecosystems actually do have to develop together or not at all. I think just by basically observing the world today, we can see that you remove one element from an ecosystem. And I think I mentioned this when we were in chapter one, you remove one element from an ecosystem and and the ecosystem crashes, right? Almost like everything in an ecosystem needs everything else in that ecosystem. That's why people who care about the earth encourage people not to chop down rainforest or kill all the bees that you can, right? Because we know ecosystems thrive together when the full ecosystem is present. Well, Moses here is making... The same assumption. And he assumes here that the plants cannot thrive without water and people to cultivate the ground, to provide nutrients where nutrients is needed, 
to organize plant life. He's assuming that. And I think by observation, we can see that truth in our world today. Now, in the ancient Near East myths, in the mythologies, the legends that surround Moses and the Hebrew people at, at this point in history, there's a, a similar message being told in each of them, right? Uh, in fact, a way that they present the early earth that is similar in all of them, that the people who wrote those legends, those myths, made the assumption that the early earth was just like it was when they wrote down their myths. That infinitely in the past, things operated the way they do now, right? There was chaos, and there was water, and there was land, and the gods had to come and create people in order to try and establish order, and the people served them to give them power over chaos, the basic story of the ancient Near Eastern myths, no matter which one you read. And I notice what Moses begins to do here in chapter 2 of Genesis. He begins to speak out really against, against that idea that the earth has always been as it is now. He says, there was a time when there wasn't rain. The earth was different. This isn't something you make up if you're making up a story, right? If you're making up a story and you want it to sound as real as possible so you can get as many religious or political followers as possible, so you're making up the story in order to get people to follow you, which is what people accuse Moses of doing with the story. If you're doing that, you're not going to come up with, especially without the scientific method, which Moses didn't have. The fact that he didn't have the scientific method actually helps us prove that this is sincere and genuine and reliable and, and corresponds to reality, right? Because Moses doesn't write about an, an, an early earth that is the same as he perceives the earth now so he can make it seem as realistic as possible. He writes about an early earth that is different. It, it has a different atmosphere. It hadn't rained yet on the earth. Why hadn't it rained yet on the earth? Well, water wasn't condensing then like it, like it was in Moses' day or like it does now. It didn't condense in the sky like it does, and it didn't fall to the earth like it does now. Now, we can't look at this and say, therefore, it didn't rain until the day of Noah and the flood. We can't read it and, and say that. I think that's reading too much into the text. But Moses here gives a detail that I think he, he otherwise probably couldn't have known unless the, the story of creation was passed down generations and generations, and that was a detail in the story, or unless God divinely revealed this to him in this moment. And I don't have a problem with either of those theories, but I do believe God has inspired Moses here, and that God is revealing some things to Moses here. Things that now, when we look at the strata of earth and the rocks, we, we can see the early earth was a very humid place. If the early earth was a very humid place, it's more likely that there would be a mist covering the whole surface of the earth than it raining all the time. And so Moses writes about a, a very different early earth, which actually helps us to, to see this as historically accurate, to look at this and it be confirmed that Moses is getting things right. This corresponds to reality. So no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, 
and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And then look at verse 6. But a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the earth. It was dense and it was humid. And there was water all over the surface of the earth. So plants could get water, but it hadn't yet rained. And then we see verse 7. There are, there are no plants according to this account yet. But there is water over the surface of the earth. And then the Lord God formed man. The Hebrew word Adam here. Adam just means man. And God planted a garden toward the east. And this is an interesting detail too in Eden. Where is Moses Where's his, where's his people from? Where is the land they call their own? It is in Canaan. It is the land of Hebron. That's why they're called the Hebrew people, right? When they go into Egypt and, and the Israelites who come out of Egypt, the sons of Israel, and, and, and where are they trying to go? To the land that has been promised to their forefather Abraham, which is right there centered on Hebron and expanding to the land of Canaan. That's where, that's where Abraham purchased property. That belongs to the Israelites. It is rightfully theirs. And in the ancient Near Eastern legends and in their mythologies, when they, when they came up with these stories, these fantastical and mystical stories about gods creating people to serve them, the, the gods would always create people at the center of what they believe civilization to be. So we think of the, the Greek gods or the Egyptian gods or the Mesopotamian gods. And they were gods of a certain district on the earth. And in each of the myths, that's where they created people. That is the center of civilization. And here Moses does something totally unexpected in his day. The Israelites are going back to Hebron. You would expect he would place the Garden of Eden at Hebron. That he would say, God created people at Hebron. That is, that is the center of civilization. That's the cradle of humanity. But he doesn't do that. Instead he says, over there in the east, God planted a garden in Eden. And, and Eden is a Hebrew word that just means luxury or place of luxury. In Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. Okay, so God creates the first Adam, the first man, outside of this garden that he had planted. And apparently this garden somehow already existed before the man, so plants are still coming first here. You're seeing that, right? So God creates the man outside of the garden, which is over there in the east somewhere, not, at, not in our home place, not where we would expect it if Moses was doing exactly the same thing that the mythologies of his day did. Over there in the east, God planted a garden. He created man outside of the garden. And if, this is an interesting detail. Like Adam, the first man, gets to see the barren world before being placed in a luxurious garden. Like he knows this is what God wants. And if I'm placed here to cultivate the earth, 
if my descendants are to, to spread over the earth, to subdue the earth, then this Garden of Eden, this is what, this is what we are to be making the rest of the earth. Like, that's what I picture Adam thinking, is he's, he's, he's created outside of the garden and then placed within the garden. I think Moses includes that detail here on purpose. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. The Lord planted a garden. Notice here the timing references. After there is no shrub and no man, no animal, no living creature, after that, God forms the man. When we get here to verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden. There is no timing reference. So this is not a contradiction to chapter 1. Uh, Moses, again, isn't providing an order of things here. We only know that these things happened after there was nothing, which makes perfect sense, right? The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, which we already know from chapter 1. But here Moses includes more details for us. The tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here Moses assigns names to two trees. One is the tree of life, which I'm going to assume uh, represents life. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I'm going to assume represents knowledge of good and evil. And he's setting the stage here for what takes place in chapter 3. And I'm not going to spend too much time on those two things just to realize that I don't think these trees have any superpowers. I don't think they are necessarily trees that are out of the ordinary. I think they are specific trees that God assigned names to in order to represent something. right? Because I believe all life comes from God and not from a tree. And I believe that all knowledge comes from God and not from a tree. So while the ancient Near East myths, they would say something like knowledge and life come from trees and snakes and other things, right? The Bible doesn't do that. God is the source of all things. But he assigns names to these trees, I think, in order to appropriate symbols of other ancient Near East literature, but also because God's going to do something with these trees later in the story. So the tree of life, the tree of knowledge are in the midst of the garden. And now Moses provides some geographical details. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. He gives us the location of the garden here. And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Why is it good? Uh, God created it when he observed his creation he called it good the bedellium and the onyx stone are there the name of the second river is Agihon. it flows around the whole land of cush and the name of the third river is tigris it flows east of assyria and the fourth river is the euphrates now here we receive more evidence that moses's account 
does correspond to reality, right? Still today, you think of this region, Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, just north of the Persian Gulf, 950 miles from Hebron, more than a 300-hour walk east from Hebron. You think of this land, and what do we still call it today? We still call this land the Fertile Crescent. We still refer to it that way. It still has some of the most nutrient-rich soil on earth. And even the, the top thinkers of our day, and educators, intellectuals, scientists, archaeologists, nearly everyone refers to this as the cradle of civilization. This is where civilization began, according to anyone who does any amount of study. And this is the area Moses, before archaeology, before we could, quote-unquote, go back in time by observing the evidence, this is where Moses clarifies civilization started. So again, we see the Bible, the biblical account, corresponds to reality and so far is coherent. I haven't seen any real contradictions yet because we're reading the text for what it is and not adding to it or taking away from it. Moses describes where the cradle of civilization is and today we have discovered. It's like people should just believe the Bible from the start. We have discovered that's exactly where the cradle of civilization is. Verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Why? To cultivate it. God planted the garden. He provided the water and he provided the man to cultivate it and keep it. Why? So that the plants could thrive, not just maybe grow a little bit and become entangled in a forest of wildness, right? But to thrive, to thrive with order as God designed. He provided a man to cultivate and keep his garden. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. I have given you this whole garden. Eat, be filled, enjoy. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Again, Moses is setting the stage for chapter 3. He doesn't tell us why a tree is so evil. Why this fruit would kill a person. I imagine that there's nothing inherently bad about this tree and nothing inherently evil about this tree. But I think what is going on is that God provides a rule. But the first law, and Moses doesn't reveal it here, but he will when we get into into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and maybe somewhere in Genesis it'll come up too. But God is creating this law 
to reveal the unrighteousness of humankind. What God creates is not bad. People will say that too. You mean God created something that was so evil people couldn't partake of it? Does that make God evil? And that's not what God is doing. There's nothing inherently evil about the tree. But God is providing a law, the potential for Adam to break his law. And he's doing it to reveal the unrighteousness of Adam. The fact that that Adam, though he was created in the image of God and the kind of God, is not is not God. And we'll see that play out as we continue to read through this story. I love Genesis chapter 2. Not as much as I love Genesis chapter 1, and maybe that's my own fault, I don't know. But as we dig deeper into the story, especially next week when we see the the creation of of the woman from Adam's rib, from his side, as we dig into the story... We begin to see the truth about the insufficiencies of humankind in the world and the all-sufficiency of God, God's sovereignty and the order of things. We begin to see the fact that though we were created to rule, we are incapable of doing so without God. So Genesis chapter 1 builds people up so much. And in Genesis chapter 2, we, we, begin to see, we begin to see the presentation of, of humankind plateau. And in Genesis chapter 3, the presentation of humankind takes a dive. And we begin to see the wretchedness of humankind and the need for a savior. The fact that people were unable to rule over the earth without God. And God reveals that through the giving of this very first law. Do not, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat from that, you will die. Not because the fruit will kill you, but because your body will suffer the effects of of sin because you disobeyed me. This This is about God. It's not about a tree, which differs quite a bit from the ancient Near East mythologies of Moses, Moses' time. The gods in those ancient Near East mythologies and those legends, the gods needed people to worship them. In Moses' account, the people need God to show them the way from the very beginning. So we're seeing something quite different, something I think in our own day we really need to pay attention to. And we'll continue next week. Amen.